Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Well, good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good? Yeah? Well, uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Josh. I'm one of the teaching pastors here uh, at the District Church, and it is always a joy and an honor to be able to open up God's Word uh, with you guys. Um, this morning, and I think we've said this uh, the last couple of weeks, this might be a hard topic to digest. Um, and I say that knowing, again, that the last couple of weeks we've said the same thing when it comes to marriage, when it comes to parenting, and now when it comes to reading words like bondservants, slaves, and masters, uh, especially in the context and especially in the world we live in today where our reality is often uh, viewed when it comes to slavery through the lens of how America has dealt with our past. And so this sermon might perk up some ears, might perk up some eyes, and, and that's okay. Um, but what I want to do this morning is kind of give you a historical perspective um, very shortly and not to try to diminish uh, the idea of what the Bible has to say towards slavery. But more importantly, I want to be able to deconstruct some of our thoughts and views before we jump into the actual point of this passage. Because this, as we read through Colossians 3, we start to see that slavery is not the point but it would be very, I would say, wrong of me to not address something that is within our society that we would have this So that's what I want to do this morning. Before we jump in, there is something that I want to say as well as often get to say around this time, um, and it really has nothing to do with Scripture. Just be prepared. Um, this is my yearly rebuke for those who have put up Christmas lights and Christmas trees before Thanksgiving has started. Guys, come on. Every year we do this. Every year. Treat Thanksgiving like it's John the Baptist. We don't even pay attention to him. We just look towards Christmas. That's all I've got to say. But it is my annual time of the year to be able to say it. In God's Irony, I get to say it every year. I'm really not sure why, but anyways. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Colossians chapter 3, looking at verse, verse 1 of chapter 3. Paul writes this, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, Hearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have also have a master in heaven. This is God's word for us. Let's go to him in Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks to our lives in day and age, culture and in reality. 
Lord, I pray this morning topic well as I pray that you would guide us in our eyes to we may be failing or where we may not collecting the faith. Lord, I ask that you would just grow us more into your life into a death. Pray all these things. What I'm going to do this morning is not something that I normally do, um, mostly because what I like to do is really stick with the If you've ever heard me preach before, um, I get uncomfortable when it comes to topical sermons or things where I'm not able to control or not really pay attention just to it. Um, but what I need to do in regards to this passage today, can we deal with this? <laughs> I'll get a handheld if I need to. I'm not sure. Check, check. Is this better? Okay. Right? I'm just kidding. Okay. Better? This is what it is at this point. Okay. Good. Check, 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 check. All right. Check. Okay. Here we go. All right. So just to point this out, this will not shorten my sermon because of that, but I'm just kidding. Okay. So <laughs> I know it's a, it's a bummer. Um, so normally, as I said, what I like to do is I, I like to walk through the scriptures and really dive into what the point of a passage is going to be and what the text is going to say. But this morning, because we see a word like slaves and because we see masters and bond servants and because there is a tension when it comes to reading a text like this, I think it is important to take a look at some historical context uh, to understand this passage a little bit. Um, and then, as well, take a look at what the Bible has to say in regards to the idea of slavery. And then what we're going to do is we'll get after the point of this passage. Because in all reality, as I said before, slavery is not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is connected to marriage, is connected to parenting, your children, and all that Paul is talking about from verse 1 in chapter 3, where Paul says to set your mind on the things above to put off the old self and to put on the new. And so my main point this morning that really everything is going to flow from, even when it comes to the idea of slavery, is that the lordship of Christ changes how we operate in society. The lordship of Christ changes how we operate in society. How we operate now that we are a new creation. Now that we have put on this new self. How we show the world what Christ looks like in our households, what Christ looks like in our marriages, what Christ looks like as we parent, 
what Christ looks like in our workplace. And I don't want to trivialize, I don't know the word, I don't want to make light of slavery and just say that this comparison is a workplace of employees and employers, although we can and will draw parallels to it. But what I want to do this morning is show how in our workplaces the Lordship of Christ even changes there. So I know most of us in this room, just to kind of get on this historical context before we get to the point of the passage, we may not be skeptical about oppression and slavery, right? I would hope that everyone in this room would, not, uh, would agree with me that slavery is exploitation and oppression of people who can't or even have been brought into such a terrible institution, right? It's abhorrent. It's evil. And it's something that needs to be eradicated from this earth. We would all agree with this, right? If, if you're not saying yes to this, then we might have to talk after this. But this is, the, this is a part of Scripture in that it is an evil in God's eyes. It's an offense to God, specifically because of all mankind being made in his image. But my job as a pastor in preparing you to do the work of the ministry outside of these walls is to help you address skeptics of our faith or skeptics of those who don't believe that the word of God is actually against slavery. And what I mean by this is I was reading this week and I found a professor of religious studies who actually wrote a paper saying that the Bible is not against slavery. And he ended this writing and saying this. This is a professor of religious studies at Ohio, uh, not Ohio State, Iowa State University. He writes, if one adopts a zero tolerance for any set of texts that at any time condone or endorse human trafficking, then the Bible fails that test regardless of any counter traditions. His whole point of his writing was to show that the Bible was not actually against slavery, but for it. And this claim is not something new, right? It's not something that we can't really look at the Bible and not comprehend. It does have some apparent face value if we don't read contextually and if we don't read holistically when it comes to what Scripture has to say. So how should we as Christians respond to these concerns? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't have a lot of time to explain, so I'm going to take a short period to show you this. But I also have found that there is more complication in its answer than the church has tried to make it out to be. Now, please don't hear me say that slavery is more complicated than we have made it to be. It's not it is an abomination, it is an evil, it is a sin against the Imago Dei. And I am in no way advocating, and neither does the Bible, for this institution. But if we're honest and we read through Scripture and see how it does talk about slavery, sometimes it is hard to reconcile why there isn't just one verse that speaks to expel it. 
But I do want to give you some appeals to the complexity of this reality and lay a foundation of why we as Christians can believe that the Bible is against slavery and furthermore that the Bible was a huge instrument to undermine this institution throughout history. And if you don't believe me that it was an actual instrument, you can read some philosophers, one specifically who's a French atheist, wrote in his book, A Brief History of Thought, says, without Christianity, we would not have the civil rights movement. So the Bible emphatically is not pro-slavery. I'll just lay that out for you if you haven't heard me say it. It is not pro-slavery. It never endorses it, and it never endorses the exploitation or oppression of others. In fact, it condemns it. It's abhorrent to God. We see this in the creation narrative. We see this in 1 Timothy 1.10, Psalm 9.9. In fact, if you really think about the creation narrative and how sin has fractured the world, slavery is man trying to usurp God's role and usurp God in telling man that they would have to work through thorns and thistles. And what I mean by that is instead of taking God's mandate to work as worship, what we have done is we have exploited others to do that work, putting ourselves as God. But the hard thing that we have to wrestle with as believers is you will not find one verse in all of Scripture that says slavery is evil and should not be practiced. And so here's the tension that we have as believers, right? Because the whole narrative of Scripture would show us this, but there is not one verse. And this is even the trouble that I had this week of wrestling with this topic is because you would think that in a passage in the New Testament, Paul might just say, you know what? Masters, let your slaves go and make it easy. Joanne Ball, a former atheist who converted to Christianity, writes in her book, Flirting with Faith. She says, the dark night of the senses describes this tension that we have as believers. She says, there are things and questions that can arise in the Christian heart that they don't know how to deal with, and they don't know how to answer them. And so all of a sudden, what they were once confident in, they are not as confident in anymore. And so this is, this is the tension that I felt. I hope that I can lay this before you. And, and you see this tension within Scripture on face value. It is sometimes hard to understand why there isn't just one verse that says this. But I do want to submit some Scriptures to you as well as some historical context so that we can begin to see how the Bible does work against slavery as well as undermining it to where it is a large instrument in the civil rights movement and further on. So the first scripture that I want to point to is 2 Peter 3.16, where Peter writes, There are some things in scripture that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. I bring this verse up because there are things that we just don't understand in a certain verse, like today's first topic, where we would think that wouldn't it just be wise for God to command something to end, but he doesn't. For example, why doesn't God use Paul to just tell masters to let slaves go? 
But I do believe that God operates in what we would understand as believers as progressive revelation, which means that God doesn't always reveal his will and character to humanity all at once, but gradually over a long period of time. So if you look at the entire narrative of the biblical revelation, it is fair to interpret that God is against this institution. But it's hard to just pull one verse from here or there and see this play out. We as Christians historically believe God accommodates his revelation to particular historical contexts as well, and even in fallen social structures within them. And this makes sense when we think about this. Unless we require that God refrain from giving any instruction or laws to a particular people at a particular time until all societal evil has been removed, an ethical exhortation like we see in a document like the epistle may not tell us everything we need to know about God's will and God's character, which is one of the reasons why we would not see this type of command in a passage like this. In fact, what we will most likely see is what we're going to be talking about today is a more day-to-day picture of the Christian life than the Bible's overall ideal and respect to an institution or structural evil. The second verse I want to appeal to is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Again, I appeal to this progressive revelation that God is far greater and far wiser than I am and any one of us. And that we can trust that the scriptures teach the admonition and teach us to go against even cultural structures and undermine things like the Institute of Slavery without Paul breaking into a command like we see in Colossians or Ephesians or just outright saying, do this. So I trust in the wisdom of God. I trust that the scriptures are progressively revealing or have revealed God's character, nature, and will, which is a part of how we fight structural evil and institutions like slavery. So let me give you some historical context as well of the Colossians, and I'm going to do this really quickly so that we don't get bogged down too much in this topic, because again, this is not the point of the passage For you and me, our idea of slavery is built around European colonialism, right? What we think of when we think of slavery is American chattel slavery that brought Africans to America to work our land, our cotton fields. They were mistreated and oppressed, beaten. This is our framework for what we think of when when we hear the word slavery. And it's an accurate one to, to think of. This is our history But let me give you just a couple differences between colonial slavery and what the scriptures are speaking on when they address slaves in the New Testament. And I acknowledge right out of the gate, again, the Bible is clear that one human being can own another human being. But there are some pieces that help us process this reality, and we begin to see the line of redemption. The first one is identification. 
An enslaved person in the Near East generally was not identified by clothing, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, background, whereas in America, they were. Slaves were African, they were black. You, you could see a black man or a black woman in the streets and know during that time, that's what they were there for. Education. In the Near East, first century slaves had a place in which education was important. And in some cultures, it was a smart business practice. We see this even in the Old Testament when Nebuchadnezzar brings Daniel up to his second in command, as well as Joseph. Education was a smart business practice in some Near Eastern cultures. That was not the case in America. Financial. You see, what God had set up both in the Old Testament and the New when it came to how Hebrews were supposed to deal with slaves, one of the things that would have been countercultural, countercultural would be the interest given on loans. Israel was not to put any interest on any type of loan, and this would have been a shock to the rest of the world. Because some interests were even as high as 100% of what you owed to another person. This was true in Babylonian history. There's also the release of Hebrew debt slaves after a certain number of years. So after seven years, the, the year of Jubilee, slaves were released and debt was forgiven. You don't find this in any other part of the ancient world. In addition to this, in Deuteronomy 15, the owner of a slave, upon setting him free, was required by God to give material assistance to that man or woman that he was releasing so that they did not go back into slavery. Again, something countercultural to what was happening in the Near East. And then we see in Colossians, Paul beginning to undermine the institution that was happening during the Roman period. The first thing we see even in this passage is how he undermines this by addressing slaves. You see, the Colossian church, especially in Rome, would have been made up of mostly slaves because at the time in Rome, 50% of people were considered a slave either by war and being put into slavery or by debt or even choosing to go into slavery he also says the wrongdoer will be judged and there's no partiality in the kingdom of God. What he's saying to slaves, what he's saying to this church is that you are now on the same level as someone like Caesar if you are in the kingdom of God. Caesar did not have a greater standing or a different place of judgment than a slave like Onesimus when it comes to the Christian faith and the Christian household. And we may take this for granted, but guys, this is profound. In the context that treated slaves as tools and objects, Paul is saying that in the lordship of Christ, you are my brother, you are my sister, we are on equal ground. And he moves into calling slaves familial, into familial relationships. You see, legally, slaves were considered cattle. A commodity that was sold, bought, exchanged, leased. It was a tool, as Aristotle would say. But Paul takes a completely different route and levels the ground by calling for familiar relationships 
between master and slave. Here, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. We see this in verse 11 of this chapter. But we also see Paul take a completely different route in the book of Philemon. If you're familiar with this book, you know that Onesimus was a runaway slave from this very church, the Colossian church. And Philemon was a leader inside of that church. And most scholars would believe that the book of Colossians, as well as the letter to Philemon, would have been read out loud to the rest of the church. And what Paul does in his letter, writing to Philemon, was strikingly different than how the rest of the world would have dealt with a runaway slave. Paul instructs Philemon to receive Onesimus no longer as a slave, but as a dear brother. And he appeals to Philemon to receive him as you would receive me. In other words, Paul dissolves the slave-master relationship and erects in place a brother-to-brother relationship in which this former slave is treated with all dignity as the apostle himself. Thus, even before the actual institution of slavery is abolished, the work of the gospel begins to abolish the assumptions and prejudices that are made to slaves in that time. Paul's epistle to Philemon may not amount to a full abolitionist manifesto or a book in which you can take to create a movement to end slavery. But it is operating within a particular context on a social level and shows how the logic of the gospel is utterly opposed to slavery. And there are two more massive mountain peaks in regards to biblical revelation that I want to give before we move to the point of this passage. The first one is creation. And I've talked about this multiple times already, but creation tells us that all humans are made in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 28, Genesis 5, 1 through 3, chapter 9 and verse 6. Creation is essential to consider because it reveals God's original intent for the human race. And the second one, this major mountain peak, is the gospel, which tells us God has overcome racial, social, and religious divisions at the cross. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, Galatians 3, 28, all show us this. Verse 11 that we just read. But the gospel shows us that one day from all man, every nation, all tribes and tongues and peoples and languages will dwell together in perfect harmony. The gospel is essential because it reveals the ultimate trajectory of God's redemptive work. So here's what the Bible in very brief has to say about this institution of slavery. And guys, I I understand that we might have been walking through a lot of head knowledge. And if you want to know where I got a lot of my information, come talk to me. We can chat about that. But I do think it's important that when it comes to critics of the Bible and critics who claim that the Bible is pro-slavery, that you have this information 
Because a part of my job, a part of a job of being a pastor is to be able to equip you all for the work of ministry and that work is sending you out outside of these walls. And so thank you for indulging me on a little bit of historical context. But now I want to get to the point of this passage. And as I said earlier, this, the point of this passage very much parallels how we operate inside of our work environments when it comes to employees and employers. And so if you've heard that parallel before from this passage, it's, it is close and so I want to kind of drive this point home that the Lordship of Christ changes how we operate in society, specifically in our workplace. As you see, Paul is addressing the entire household in Colossians 3. And what's interesting is this section really kind of comes out of nowhere. I know that we've been walking through Colossians kind of verse by verse or portions of Scripture through portions of Scripture, but if you read this letter in its entirety, this part of the text seems a bit off, right? Because Paul starts in chapter 1 talking about the supremacy of Christ and how Christ is the invisible, the image of the invisible God, that he's the firstborn over all creation by whom and through whom all things were made. And then he moves on to chapter 2 and talks about Paul's ministry and how we as believers now are alive in Christ, that our sins are forgiven, that the debt has been canceled, that it has been nailed to the cross. And then chapter 3 commands us to set our minds on the things above, to put off the old self and to put on the new. Even in verses 15 through 17, we, talk, we see Paul talking about how the church is supposed to interact with one another in peace, in love, in harmony, in patience, in forgiveness. And then he commands in verse 17 to do all things for the glory of God. All of this lofty speech, and then all of a sudden, Paul goes into these verses talking about husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves, or as we'll say, employees and employers. All of a sudden, Paul gets into the mundane of a Christian household, the mundane of a Christian life. And we have to slow down and ask the question, why? Why would Paul care about these things when he's talking and has just gotten done talking about the supremacy of who God is and the beauty and reality of who we are in Christ now that our sins have been forgiven? Why would Paul care about these things? Why would God inspire Paul to write these things to us? One pastor in Tennessee puts it like this, because the lordship of Jesus Christ isn't some high-in-the-sky idealism, it is a new capacity for loving that enters into the mundane of our social relationships. The lordship of Christ enters into our mundane lives and shows us how to live in this world and live with those around us. The lordship of Christ in our lives changes every reality in life, including the mundane including our everyday relationships, including our household, including our workplaces. Every relationship of our lives should be submitted to the Lordship of Christ. From our spouses, to our children, to our co-workers, to our employers and employees. 
The Christian faith is not something that you come in here on Sunday, practice, and then rest the rest of the week. The rest six and a half days of the week, you don't practice what you claim to believe. The Lordship of Christ is something that should permeate every area of your life and every relationship, including what you would consider mundane. So let's take a look at what this looks like for work. And I want you to see that Paul grounds his commands as we are going to kind of walk through this passage one more time in two or three phrases. And it ends with the Lord or from the Lord. And so if you write in your Bible, if you have an iPad or whatever you want to highlight, I would highlight that phrase because this is what he grounds the command in how to live with others. So let's take a look real quick again at verses 22 through verse 1. Paul writes again, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. So four things I want to point out from this passage. First, when it comes to employees and how we work, God calls us to obey in everything. We do not get to pick and choose what we do in our jobs in regards to how we are to work. Or who we are to follow. 1 Peter 2.18 expands this, telling us that we must obey good and gentle, but also the unjust employer. Agreements with our boss, or if we like them, is not a prerequisite for following him or her. We obey in everything. And then we obey with sincerity. This phrase, I service, that Paul writes means the kind of obedience only when the boss is looking or he comes around. But Jesus-centered workers are consistent workers, are faithful workers. We don't just work when the boss has his or her eye on us. We work because we are working for the Lord. Then we see Paul commanding our work to be a form of worship. Believers work because they see that their gifts and their talents and their strengths are a gift from God to be used as an offering of worship to Jesus. That means the gifts and talents that we have, that we get to use in the workplace, we recognize that God has given them to us in order to bring him glory. And then the fourth thing that we see when it comes to our workplace is that we will be held accountable. And that ultimate accountability for our lives and our work comes from Christ. So yes, there's accountability when it comes to our workplace because our bosses are going to give us accountability, but ultimately our accountability as believers comes from the Lord. And that's why we work well. 
That's why we strive to show the glory of God in our work. And for those of you who are employers, and I know we have some of them in here, our call as believers is to be fair and to be just. People in authority should not take advantage of their position and use it as an abusive place of power. We must realize that every position of authority comes from the Lord, as Romans 13 would tell us. Therefore, authority needs to be used in a fair and just way. And furthermore, you will be held accountable as well. People in authority must realize that there is someone greater than them, and one day we will all give an account. All power is dependent upon the power and rule of God, and that is the foundation for why we as people in authority should treat those under us justly and fairly. And Paul's point here in this passage is this. Our work should be worship. Our lives and how we work in our jobs and even furthermore in our homes, how we parent, this should be worship. And not worship like we did where we sang and praised God, but worship as Romans 12 talks about our lives and how we sacrifice live out the gospel. There's a beautiful vision here of the way that the gospel is clearly seen and demonstrated in our workplaces when we live this way. Believers, we are called to transform the workplace into a platform for the gospel. And so I want to press into you all with a few questions this morning that I was able to be challenged by, by one of the pastors here in the local area. And I think they're helpful to think through. Are you known as a hardworking, consistent, faithful person who is full of integrity? When your boss looks at the list of employees, do you bring them joy or grief to his or her heart? Do you show subtle signs of disrespect? Do people come to you with complaints about management, or are you someone who's the last to know because you don't want to be a part of that? Can you obey someone you don't respect? Do you work harder on the projects that you know are inspected? Or are you consistent on every single project that's been given to you? Employers, do your employees know you as a fair and honest person? And can they express concern and give input without fear? You see, five days a week or or however many days that you do work and you interact with people, you get to, people get to know you and your faith by your work and what you produce or the way you may lead. And so my question is very simple to you, is do those people that you interact with on a daily basis see anything that reflects Christ? And I want to, Gently remind you, 
that your end game for your job is not a paycheck or a promotion. It is what we just read in Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. See, the lordship of Christ in our workplace transforms everything that we see when it comes to people, when it comes to tasks, when it comes to how our employees view us. The lordship of Christ should transform our mentality when it comes to work and ultimately create a place of worship for us. And what's crazy about this passage and what's crazy about the entirety of Paul's line of the Christian household is that when we seek to live this out, the gospel transforms. It transforms us. It transforms those around us. And it's amazing. The Lordship of Christ extends to all areas of our life, and it is revolutionary. And I want you to see that there's powerful opportunities for you all in your relationships. Yes, in your workplace, but yet, yes, in your families, how you parent, how you love your spouses. You can show people that following Christ works. And we do this when husbands love their wives well, when wives are submissive as Christ is, when children obey their parents, when employees work as they work unto the Lord, and when employees are known as fair and just. And all of this depends on what Paul talks about in verse 1. And this is the beautiful reality of this chapter that I loved to see throughout this week. Paul tells us to set our minds on things above because that's where we're able to put off our old self and put on the new self. And so husbands, how are you a good example of love? By looking to Christ. By setting your mind on Him. Wives, how are you beautifully submitting to your husbands? By setting your mind on Christ to the things above. Children, how do you love and obey your parents? By setting your minds on Christ, who was the greatest example of obedience. Employees, how do we show Christ in our workplace? By looking to Him above as our impartial rewarder and employers. How do you show the glory of God and Christ and his lordship by looking to him above as the heavenly judge? The hope for our families, guys, the hope for this church, the hope for our nation is that each one of us in our distinctive roles ask this very important question. What does it mean today for Jesus to be Lord of every area of my life. What does that mean? What does that look like? And so that's what I want to challenge you all with this morning. And I'm going to close with communion, as we do every week. And this communion is a reflection of our unity with Christ, of the reality that we have as adopted sons and daughters of God that our sins have been paid for, that all of our shame, all of our sin, the blemishes that we have, the, the times where we choose our own will, 
All of that has been paid for in Christ. And we are in his family. And so when we take this juice, when we take this bread, we are reminded of that reality. But then that reality overflows into every area of our life. It doesn't just stop here. It's something that should permeate throughout our lives so that the glory of God can be shown in this earth and that the kingdom can grow. And so my challenge to you guys as we take this communion is to remember that, but also as we leave today, that we commit to making the Lordship of Christ our main priority in our homes, at our workplaces, in our very individual lives so that the glory of God can be shown here in Indianapolis and in this world. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to close out with communion and a song to praise God in the, the reality that we have as believers. So let's do that and then we can all partake in communion together. Lord, thank you for your beautiful truths. Thank you for the reality that we are in Christ. That union with him and all the beautiful promises that we have because we are in him. Lord, my prayer this morning is that you would show us where we have not made the Lordship of Christ our main priority in any and every relationship that we have. And Lord, that we would seek to commit to living in such a way that puts you first. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy, Lord. May you continue to empower us through the promise that you've given us. And may we live in such a way that brings glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at